Hi, this is Jamie Pride, and welcome to episode 25 of the Failure Proof Podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore leadership, performance, resilience, and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. This week's episode is brought to you by The Founder Lab, a free community where entrepreneurs can share experiences and ideas and work towards being a better founder. Find out more at thefounderlab.com.au. On this week's show, I'm joined by Professor Michael J. Biersick. Michael is the CEO and founder of Q Control, a venture capital-backed company that provides disciplined, controlled engineering solutions to harness the power of quantum physics for the next generation technologies. Q Control is built on Michael's research leading the Quantum Control Lab at the University of Sydney, where he is a professor of quantum physics and quantum technology. Michael holds both CEO and professorial positions concurrently, and in his academic role is a chief investigator in the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems. As an award-winning experimental quantum physicist, Michael speaks with clarity and authority about science and technology, and is adept at making physics accessible for a lay audience, from what electricity is to how computers work. Michael is one of the world's leading experts in the new emerging field of quantum technology. The work he is doing promises to be as transformational in the 21st century as harnessing electricity was in the 19th. This episode is definitely one of my favorites as myself and Michael talk about everything from the impact that quantum physics will have on our future, the importance of a liberal arts education to our mutual love of watches. Michael is seriously smart, approachable, and his work is making a huge impact on the future. Please enjoy the episode. Today's show, I am joined by Professor Michael J. Bissick. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, so I, it's not every day I get a quantum physicist on the show. Why not? <laughs> well, I'm a, I, myself a uh, closet physicist a uh, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, um, although my undergraduate results weren't probably as good as yours. Um, <laughs> what, what drove you? I mean, physics is a pretty broad church. Um, what drove you into the field of quantum physics? Uh, yeah, it's kind of a long road, and everybody's journey is uh, is really personal. Mine was um, uh, basic interest in science when I was young, and uh, there were lots of paths that I could take. In fact, I entered university thinking I would be a medical doctor. Okay. Um, so I pursued what in the United States would be a pre-med uh, course because medical school is a graduate level uh, degree. And uh, that involved things like organic chemistry and biochemistry. And uh, at some point, I just realized I was not enjoying myself. Right? Yeah. And um, I thought about what I was enjoying and I was uh, liking research and I was liking uh, – the physics courses that were part of my undergrad program, and I just kind of started straying over more towards physics. Uh, I found a fantastic mentor uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, a guy named Charlie Johnson. He was just fantastic to welcome me in the field. He was a younger guy at the time. And uh, uh, he brought me into a field that uh, is is called condensed matter physics. So this is the physics of how solid materials behave, like how how they conduct electricity and, and things as such. Uh, and and gradually over time, you know, that field uh, and, and some others merged together and gave birth to a new field, right? And the new field is called quantum information, right? There were some some key discoveries at the time in the late in the mid to late 1990s. And uh all of that happening roughly at the same time that I was becoming a professional entering the field, um, 
just gave some serendipity to the fact that something new was emerging at the time that I was becoming interested in in this as a professional pathway. And I entered this field that's uh, that's now called quantum information and uh, and kind of got started in my uh, in my serious professional career as a grad student at Harvard in, in about 2001. And uh, it, you know, it, the rest, as they say, is history. And right? I, I did a whole bunch of research in the field, um, had a bit of a circuitous path and then eventually ended up. At, uh, in a faculty appointment at University of Sydney in, uh, in 2010. Fantastic. And for our listeners who aren't necessarily STEM people, um, broadly, how would you describe, I guess, in a 101 sense, what, what is the field of quantum information and, and quantum mechanics generally? Yeah, the starting point is what is quantum physics or quantum yeah. mechanics. This is the set of rules that governs things on very small scales. So when we talk about the rules that describe how uh, single particles of matter like atoms behave or how individual particles of light called photons behave, the rules are called quantum mechanics. And uh, what's kind of interesting about it is that those rules feel uh, very different to us, right? They feel very different from our experience. And you'll sometimes hear in the, in the popular press things like uh, in quantum mechanics, an object can be in, in air quotes in two places at the same time, right? This is, this is a not quite accurate uh, description, but what what it's really getting at is the fact that our English language or any you know vernacular language description of what happens on these really small sizes just breaks. What we thought for a long time was that this quantum physics was just strange math, mm. and in the 1980s and 1990s we discovered that in fact the strange math was real, and you could really see this in a laboratory. And, and a, a guy that I worked for uh, named Dave Wineland showed some of these first demonstrations that the strangest things in quantum mechanics, the description of matter as a particle and a wave at the same time, which just sounds so crazy to us, mm. um, it, it was all correct. And Einstein, in fact, was wrong in his in his uh, thesis that quantum mechanics couldn't be right. So that uh, that gave rise to a new field where we try to put this stuff to work. We try to build useful technology. Um, and and so you've sort of built a career, I guess. And the field itself is is constantly evolving. It has probably evolved pretty substantially over the course of your of your academic career. Yeah, that's right. Um, we're now sort of, I think, and we probably have for a little bit of time, starting to reach the application stage to mm -hmm. a certain degree. And and um, in terms of sort of what you're doing, um, you've sort of started to look more at sort of the quantum future and you founded uh, a technology startup um, based on on quantum information. Yeah, that's right. So it's called Q Control. Um, yeah, we certainly saw that, you know, the the later part of the 20th century was, is this stuff real? Mm. Um, then we kind of discovered it was. And then from the 90s until the early 2000s, it was, can we do anything with it? And now uh, those questions have been answered in the affirmative and we're trying to build technology and the kind of the, the key technology that you hear about the most in the in the popular press is called uh, quantum computing. So trying to build new kinds of computers that use the new resources we find on these really small size scales to do something that a regular computer can't. And uh, this is what my research career has been based on, trying to build this kind of technology, figuring out what we need to do to make it work. And uh, Q-Control is, uh, is a technology company that's uh, it's VC-backed. It's actually Australia's first quantum technology company backed by venture capital. Um, we build software to try and make quantum computers perform better. So sometimes in the tech space, it's called infrastructure software. If you've heard of VMware, that's an infrastructure software yeah. provider. We're a little bit like that in the quantum computing space. And it's a software company or a hardware company? Uh, the, the company produces and sells software, but it's, uh, it's this low level in the stack. Uh, we call it quantum firmware. So it's, uh, it's 
um, software that makes the hardware perform better mm -hmm. as opposed to software that you would like run an algorithm, run a program on uh, at the higher level for right. the user. And so more broadly, I mean, my, my, with my limited understanding of quantum computing is that you're essentially trying to use electron states to represent zeros and ones. Then. So that's one way, right? right? I think if we take a step back, the idea is that we have these new rules that we found and we know they're right now mm. and we want to figure out what we can do with them. So the kinds of, of phenomenology we can employ uh, are to start with the superposition, the, mm. uh, the idea that a quantum system can in air quotes be in two places or two states at once. Now, if you apply that to uh, a bit of information, the zero or the one that you use in a conventional computer, you turn it into a quantum bit mm. and that quantum bit can be in air quotes, a zero or a one, or zero and one at the same time. Mm. And that already sounds very different and it sounds like you can do something useful. Then you can add entanglement, which mm. is the idea that quantum mechanical systems can be linked together in a way that is not describable by conventional physics, it's only describable by this, this mathematics. And that is uh, another resource that we can employ. So putting these things together, the objective is to Pro store and process information in a way that's very different than the way conventional computers work. And it's really motivated by some discoveries in the 1990s that I kind of alluded to earlier, showing that if you had a computer that used this kind of physics as a resource, you could solve problems that are exceptionally high impact and exceptionally hard for even the biggest supercomputers. So that's been the biggest motivator for our field. Right. And so I'd love to sort of explore some of that. Um, one of the things I'm personally really interested in is, is encryption. Um, and I guess where I first uh, – one of the things I did when I studied um, uh, my physics degree was actually looking at factoring of large prime numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and for those people who are listening, um, you know, the basis of public key encryption is predominantly centered around the fact that factoring of large prime numbers is very, very difficult for a traditional computer. And there was sort of some view and my sort of – limited experience was that you know the realm of quantum computing could potentially solve that problem um and potentially render most encryption systems useless yeah it's it's kind of it's worth spending another second on this right the, mm. when we think about information security right when we're talking about governments communicating with each other or even when you're talking to your bank most people don't know that the the security of the information transmission actually comes from how hard a math problem is yeah. for a regular computer. So anytime your browser says HTTPS, you're using what's called a public key crypto system where mm. the security comes from how difficult it is for a computer to take a really big number mm. and decompose it into the two numbers that you multiply together, which are prime, which are only divisible by one in themselves. As the number you start with gets really big, this problem gets really, really hard. And the whole genesis of the field of quantum computing actually ties to this problem because in, in the early to mid-1990s, a gentleman named Peter Shore, who was at the time at ATT Labs in the US and is now at MIT, um, he wrote down an algorithm saying, if you have a computer that has these interesting properties where you can encode and process information using quantum physics, run this algorithm. And now a problem that is exceptionally hard for even the world's biggest supercomputers is tractable. Right? And the way we measure this is usually what's called computational complexity. Mm. If I make the problem a little bit bigger, how much harder is it for a computer to solve? With the, with the factoring problem, the way that information companies or information security companies like RSA, your RSA token, yep. the way they get around the uh, growing computational power is they just make the, the key bigger. Yeah. Right, so you, you maybe you heard of RSA 128, now it's RSA 2048 and 4096, and you get these bigger and bigger keys. 
every time you do that, it gets exponentially harder, mm. right? And people hear about exponential growth. This is the, the you know the curve that goes skyrockets uh, along the graph. Well, if you if you have a quantum computer that's running in the right way, it becomes uh, you know polynomial scaling, right? Mm. And and so for those of you who are more mathematically uh, inclined, the, the polynomial scaling is very is much more favorable for building an actual computer, right? So mm. things that could in principle take the age of the universe on any computer can be reduced to minutes or days or or hours or some some tractable time scale. So so this problem has been one of the biggest drivers. Mm. But I have I have kind of bad news for you. <laughs> uh, that that even though even though this remains the 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 kind of seminal problem in the field mm. that really started research in this uh, in in what is now the discipline of quantum information combining mm. these other disciplines I mentioned before um, it's still a long way off because even the most optimistic assumptions of what you need to factor a, a practically relevant number mm. are enormous quantum computers enormous so for scale right now quantum computers are have about um, Let's just pick a round number, about 20 quantum bits, 20 fundamental logic units that we use to encode information. Compare that to start with um, your laptop. Your laptop has a microprocessor in it. It has something like a billion transistors. So there's a really big difference there. And uh, you know, you look at how big a system you would need in, in optimistic projections to factor a reasonable number, and you're talking, the numbers I've read are between uh, 50 million and 2.5 trillion quantum bits. We're a long way from that. The good news, because you know, good news always follows bad, is that how hard that problem is has motivated a lot of very smart algorithm designers to try to find other things we can do with quantum computers, and that's where the field has come to right now. Right, and and so for me, it's it's just a really interesting thing to watch and and sort of look at sort of you know encryption. Ultimately, is just it's time versus computing power at this stage, right? And so it's sort of this current race where, as you described, um, you know, traditional companies are. I mean, all encryption ultimately is 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 solvable. It just takes time and, and processing power. Yeah, I guess there, there's kind of two different classes of encrypted information. There's strategic and tactical, right? So tactical, um, let's say you want to break uh, some encryption algorithm. Maybe it only matters in the next 30 seconds, right? You want to you want to crack this code before somebody takes some action that is uh, that is relevant. Um, but then there's the the long term strategic stuff, right? Government secrets, right? If governments, you know, it's very clear that even encrypted information is getting stored all over the world because information storage has gotten so cheap. Um, so, you know, the classification lifetime on a lot of documents for governments is thirty years, and then it gets renewed, right? Mm -hmm. So there are still things from you know the nineteenth century that are classified for some gut from some governments. Um, you know, if if you build a quantum computer even thirty or forty years from now that's capable of running this algorithm called Shor's algorithm to factor large numbers, then that information becomes insecure. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a, a, a different kind of threat that many people are very interested in. So they're trying to think about a uh, alternate, uh, what are called quantum resistant public key crypto systems, um, but also just making the keys bigger and bigger and bigger to push mm -hmm. out that horizon. Yeah, completely. Um, and, and so you've had a very um, long and fruitful career in the academic Not so long. I'm not that old. <laughs> well, I mean, longer than mine. Um, and you have um, now um, sort of branched out and, and founded a technology startup, Q Control. Um, was that your first foray into founding a startup? And how did you find that sort of transition coming from, you know, the traditional world of, of academia into sort of, you know, a very different environment in, in, in entrepreneurialism and startups? 
Yeah, Q-Control is, is absolutely my first uh, startup company. It's the first time I've been a founder. It's not my first business experience. Mm -hmm. I mentioned I had a bit of a circuitous path from graduate school over uh, into a faculty appointment. I, I worked as a management consultant for several years um, as a full-time consultant to the government, to government in the U.S., to government agencies, helping them make invest strategic investments in technology. And uh, uh, so I guess I was exposed a little bit to the world outside of academia um, for, for a number of years. And uh, I, I do feel like that background was was valuable in helping make me uh, helping me make this decision. Um, but indeed, uh, I, I reached a point where I felt the field quantum information had evolved to a point where um, it was effectively now or never. Right? right that that there was enough interest from end users in quantum computers. There was enough interest in investors uh, to really justify giving it a try. Right. right. And that's where we landed in mid 2017. And, and so, sort of the field has sort of reached that point where, you know, you sort of see it's burgeoning on commercialization. And, and so you're providing essentially control software for other ecosystem players, essentially. Yeah. So we, we're a very broad based player. We do a lot of different things. Our, our core technology makes quantum computers perform better, mm. right? And today's quantum computers are small and they suffer from lots of errors we stabilize the hardware against those errors, right? That's been the specialty of my academic team. Um, you know, there's there's probably 10 or 12 different academic groups around the world that really specialize in, in roughly the same thing that I've specialized in. Uh, but we're the first commercial player to to move in this space. So that, that part of, of our offering services the market of hardware manufacturers, of research and development teams, and, and we have a number of customers in that space. And then we also move up the so-called quantum compute stack to use our understanding, our expertise in this discipline of control engineering to make things for a different market, for algorithm designers, for mm. people who want their algorithm to just run better. They don't, they don't care whose hardware, they don't understand the physics of the devices, they just want it to be better, get better results. We provide uh, techniques that allow algorithms to run better as well. Uh, by building error robustness into the algorithm. So it's all leveraging our expertise in this discipline of control in order to uh, to accelerate the path to the first useful quantum computers. Right. And so we talked about the field of, of quantum information, and we, we spoke about the obvious problem around encryption, but, you know, there are other applications. and, and Fortunately, you know, yes. Yes, fortunately. Otherwise, it's going to be a long time um, before we can harvest. But um, what, do you view, what do you view a quantum future looking like, and, and what are the other applications of, of quantum technology and quantum computing? Yeah, so just starting with quantum computing, um, very smart people have, have looked hard at this problem, being motivated by the 30-plus year time horizon to factoring. Um, and they've started to uh, discover new application spaces. The most promising appears to be solving problems in chemistry. Okay. And it may not sound that uh, exciting to an outside person, but it's worth noting that something like 90% of all global supercomputing time goes to solving problems in physics and chemistry and related things, right? All these supercomputers all around the world that you hear about, they're all solving science problems, right? And uh, chemistry is a great example because chemistry, the, the you know, interaction of electrons in different molecules to form some new molecule, um, that's a quantum mechanical process. That's all governed by quantum mechanics. But what we have to do is take that quantum mechanical system and model it using classical physics to cram it into your laptop or a supercomputer. And that, that bottleneck is, is painful. And it says that there are certain problems we really can't solve efficiently. So 
the, the kind of newer paradigm is you take a quantum problem, you map it onto a quantum computer, right? A computer that processes information using the same rules. And then that bottleneck is erased, eliminated. What's, what's kind of exciting about chemistry is, first of all, there are some very big problems to solve, and I'll come back to that. But chemistry right now is all based on approximation, right? We, we, have, to, we have to throw away a lot of uh, information, throw away a lot of the complexity in the problem to get something that's almost right. And as long as we can do something that's a little bit better, it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And quantum computers in the near term, in the next, say, five to 10 years, look like they may cross over that threshold, giving that utility. But the scale of the problems that uh, that become of interest, this is where the the excitement and the motivation comes. Uh, um, a colleague of mine named Matthias Troyer, who was at the time at ETH Zurich, uh, showed that a problem called uh, the Haber-Bosch process, which is how we make fertilizer, right? How do you make ammonia-based fertilizer? That problem is potentially tractable with medium-term quantum computers. Now, it may not sound like the most exciting thing, making fertilizer. You know, it stinks when you go to the garden store. Um, but amazingly, that process of making the fertilizer that you go to the garden store and buy or that agricultural uh, you know, industry uses, it consumes about 6% of the Earth's natural gas output every year because it's so inefficient to make the fertilizer. Wow. But all the time, plants are doing – or bacteria and plant roots are doing almost the same thing, and we don't really understand how. Mm-hmm. So the, the suggestion is – that maybe you can model this with a quantum computer. And that's that's extremely exciting because the impacts on agriculture, on industry, on just kind of fuel consumption, these are enormous impacts, right? So modeling and simulation, a huge growing area. That's right. So in this nearer term era, solving these physics-y chemistry problems, this is uh, where we think we can make the first two impact. But we've also seen uh, recently that um, – uh, other industries have been mapping their problems onto problems of interest. Right? You see this all the time, right? There's a whole field called econophysics, right? In econophysics, they they map economic problems onto things that we know how to solve in physics, and the similar things are happening with uh, with quantum computing. And uh, we've seen, for instance, uh, demonstrations of algorithms for option pricing uh, using quantum computing algorithms, right? That can potentially give some impact, right? Well, if there's a if there's a way to make a dollar, everybody will chase it, don't worry. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of uh, uh, quants uh, sitting in investment banks looking at how they can get an edge, right? Using- That's true. There's, there's uh, you know, the biggest growth area in our sector right now on the commercial side is um, is algorithm mapping. So shops that, that try to uh, take a problem from some end user and map it into something that could be solved efficiently with a quantum computer. That's a real growth area. It's not what we do. We do something a lot lower in the software stack. Right. Right? And so, and so the, the concept is, is that essentially it's a proxy. Um, so, so they take something that's sort of in, in the traditional real world and sort of create a proxy for it or a model. Is that sort of what the, the logic behind it is? Yeah, it's well, so you have some really complicated physical system or, or, or economic system, and you want to try and you know understand how it behaves. Mm-hmm. Um, a great conventional example is option pricing, yeah. right? Option pricing is uh, Black-Scholes, right? Yep. And the reason that Black-Scholes was so uh, successful and so impactful is that it took this very complicated idea, how do I price an option? And it turned it into a physics problem where we know the answer. We know the answer. This is a solved problem. It's called the diffusion equation, right? And so by making that mapping, 
they have had enormous impact because you can just throw a computational grunt at it. And a lot of a lot of uh, uh, shops are are thinking about how can I take other very complicated problems and map them into things we know how to do on quantum computers. One one algorithm is called phase estimation, another called amplitude estimation. These are like they're really techy sounding little subroutines that don't sound very exciting on prima facie. But if you can map your problem onto something like that where we know how to solve it, then all of a sudden a quantum computer is good for you, right? Yeah. That's what's happening right now. Um, and so what does the future hold? So, you know, we, we've started to sort of see early application of, of quantum computing. Um, beyond that, um, you know, I've, he- I've heard you speak a lot about sort of bottom-up versus top-down fabrication and, and sort of at, at that level. Um, what, what do you sort of see over the sort of the next 5, 10, 15 years in terms of sort of where, where you sort of see the field going and what the impacts will be to society? So it's it's taken me longer to get to this uh, to this line. If you've seen my talks, I say it all the time. Uh, took me longer to get here than I than I expected. But uh, uh, the idea of the breadth of impact of this field is something I really can't uh, overstate. That quantum technology, which harnesses quantum physics as a resource, is likely to be as transformational in the twenty first century as harnessing electricity was in the nineteenth. This is an absolutely globally transformational new part of technology that's just emerging right now. Quantum computing is just one application, right? It's one that's gotten a lot of excitement because of the potential impact and investors are, are engaged, et cetera. Um, big tech companies are engaged, but it's just one aspect of this, right? We also have uh, plays in um, in sensing, right? In, in detecting things, underground structures or, or underwater structures, um, detecting, sensing, uh, you know, pipes buried underground using gravimetric sim- signals, signals of uh, gravity that change, right? All of these things can be enhanced by using quantum physics. Timekeeping, believe it or not. Timekeeping, which is the basis of global positioning, is already a quantum technology. It's in fact the first quantum technology, and we're thinking about ways to make new timekeeping devices that leverage different parts of, of quantum physics. So there's this enormous breadth of activity going on. And uh, you know, Q-Control's objective is to be the trusted provider of this infrastructure software across all the applications. But what I really see is that in this next you know, decade or, or more, we'll have a transformation of quantum technology becoming truly ubiquitous. And uh, it doesn't mean that it's in, you know, in every consumer item, right? You don't typically own an atomic clock, but you leverage it every time you use a location-based service, right? You know, your phone is talking to an, a satellite with an atomic clock on it. So I really see the impact becoming bigger and broader, even if it's not so transparent, right? You know, you know maybe not have Q inside kind of stuff, <laughs> but, um, you know, this is a, we're, we're, we're at the beginning of a totally new industry, right? It's just started in the last five or 10 years. And it's it's a truly exciting time to be engaged in the field. Um, do you think there's an intersection with machine learning and, and AI ultimately? I mean, obviously, that's a function of computing power and also some really interesting algorithms. And so is there a natural affinity with those two fields? I think I think people are certainly interested in understanding the answer to that question. And I, I don't have a good one for you right now. There's, there's a lot of research in something called quantum machine learning. And uh, people are thinking about new ways to uh, – to, to run machine learning algorithms using quantum computers, leveraging quantum information instead of conventional information. Um, some things we, we already have learned you won't really get a benefit from, but others you might. Uh, but then there's the other side of it, which is kind of the links between machine learning slash AI and, and 
the nature of quantum physics, there was some great work, again, from this gentleman I mentioned before, Matthias Troyer and his team, uh, showing kind of unexpected links between the performance of neural networks, uh, I, I think they were deep neural networks, and uh, and interacting what are called many-body quantum systems. So you have many, many quantum particles interacting like um, uh, many thousands of electrons or something. The fact that you could use a deep neural network to, to learn about this many-body state Maybe it says that there is some deeper link in in the mathematics of of uh, neural networks and AI and the mathematics of quantum physics that could be exploited in some new way. That's a very very exciting question, but it is a longer term problem. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And and so you've you've made the leap um, into an entrepreneurial endeavor. How what went through your mind when you sort of went through that process? I mean, obviously you saw the market opportunity and you sort of said it's a now or never, you know, kind of an exercise. But in terms of sort of entering into essentially a new field and a new profession, but applying applying your knowledge and expertise, um, did you? Did you think about it in terms of analyze and, and weigh it up, or did you sort of push all in? I mean, what's what's sort of the general sort of approach did you take? Did you speak to people in the industry? I mean, I know you're you're backed by um, Main Sequence Ventures. I know Mike Zimmerman over there. Those guys at CSIRO, they're doing some pretty pretty interesting things in in deep tech investment. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what was your sort of um, your sort of thinking process? Yeah, well, just to start, we're we're backed by Main Sequence right. by Horizons Ventures, which is the private uh, family office of Mr. Li Ka-Sheng in Hong Kong, by Sequoia Capital, and uh, and also by DCVC, Data Collective in Silicon Valley. Um, You know, I wouldn't say it was thinking so much as struggling, right? It was really a difficult thing, of course, because um, as a professional academic, I'm a full professor. um, You know, we're conditioned to uh, see that as the be-all, end-all of existence. Um, It's also, you know, transitioning in terms of risk and things like that um, from a very stable career, tenure obviously, to a much more risky endeavor. Um, I think those things were in my mind, but the, the biggest thing I had to eventually discover for myself, I, I, don't, I don't even know how I got there, but I got there, um, was understanding what the primary difference in entrepreneurship versus, um, versus say, academic science are, right? Because we're still doing research. We're an R&D yeah. tech shop, right? Deep tech. And that difference I articulate is the fo- in the following way. It's, it's the difference between pursuing opportunity versus pursuing truth, right? right? Now, I don't mean opportunity at the expense of truth, but as, as an academic professional scientist, my job is to understand the nature of the universe, mm. right? And uh, I may do try to build something with it, but I'm always trying to answer fundamental questions about what is true and what is not. And that means the way I, I attack problems is always predicated on I must know what is true. That is the primary thing. And I'll test things and I'll discard theses as rapidly as possible to get to the truth. In, in entrepreneurship, um, again, this is the way I think about it, uh, it's about pursuing an opportunity, right? And that opportunity is fraught with risk and unknowns and things that may not be right, right? But approaching it like a scientist means you're going to systematically try and exclude all the things that are wrong. And in the process of doing so, the whole opportunity will have passed you by, right? And so it's really kind of an inversion of what you prioritize that I have to, I had to learn to accept risk, to accept uncertainty in a, in a different way, and to put aside my quest for the, the foundational truth, the reality of the world, and instead say, I've identified an opportunity, and I'm going to run with that. If it doesn't work, then we can always uh, pivot it. We can try new things. Um, we can even discard that idea and start completely anew. Um, 
but accepting that was was fundamental. And it's really interesting. Every time I talk to, um, let's say, an ex-academic or a current academic, um, someone in my research field or a related research field, they pepper me with questions about, haven't you thought about this? And isn't this going to be, you know, from from the business perspective, from the um, from the uh, technical perspective, you know, fundamental science, like, haven't you forgotten about this thing? Then that means your whole plan's going to fall over. Um, you know, the answer is no to that. But uh, that, you know, I used to have that mindset. I used to, I used to pepper my friends who were a little bit entrepreneurial in the same way. And, um, uh, I realize now it's just not the right way to think about it. Right. And, and it's because I'm not trying to pursue the truth of, of reality. I'm trying to build something that is exciting and useful to others. Right. It's yeah. just different. Yeah. Although I think there are some similarities. I mean, I think Steve Blank said that a startup is uh, an idea in search of a scalable, repeatable, profitable business model. And, you know, ultimately startups are around value propositions and business models. And there's a lot of working hypotheses that need to be tested. And I guess the rigor that I don't necessarily always see in startups is what are our working assumptions and, you know, what's our working hypotheses and what are we, what are we going out? What experiments are we going to run on our startup business model? And for me, that, there's, there's probably uh, that is probably an overlap, right? In, in a sense that you know, searching for the truth, but at the same time, you are taking hypotheses, testing them, and and validating or invalidating them. Yeah, there, there is no question that there is uh, a lot of overlap, and there are a lot of uh, uh, contributions that my background as an academic make to the way I function as an entrepreneur. Um, for instance, just the way I solve problems, just the way I've, I've learned to solve problems, and the members of my team have learned to solve problems. Um, that is a skill that, you know, most people don't have many people at least don't have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can systematically figure out what things to worry about and what not to worry about, whether it's in a business plan or a marketing plan or whatever, based on the kind of technical backgrounds that we have. And, uh, you know, you see the same thing with storytelling and the necessity of connecting with your audience. Like all these things are, are similar between the academic world and, uh, and the entrepreneurial world. Um, you know, even, even to this level of, you know, making hypotheses and testing them in the, in the way you described a moment ago. Um, th this is just kind of second nature to us as, as scientists, right? Um, but I do, I do uh, want to emphasize this idea of the mindset being so different, right? The way you, if you if you approach entrepreneurship like you would approach a science or a physics problem, you would do absolutely nothing, right? All you would do is try to exclude possibities, yep. and you would make no progress, right? You, and, go, you go broke. Yeah, you certainly <laughs> would. So, so there's probably, I mean, there's there's the certainly the approach and seeking the truth that are really not. I like the wording, but also there's the risk appetite, right? And and so you know, I think that's that's something that is in in in. Um, the DNA. Yeah, of but you know, I was I was worried about it for a long time, and you know, obviously, I'm a tenured academic. Yeah. I feel like I've got this tremendous stability, and uh, in the sense that I have a job and I won't not get paid. That's true. Um, but as an academic, you know, I don't get a budget from the university. <laughs> I have to go and hunt my own money, and it comes from grants from Australia. It comes from grants from abroad. Comes from industrial partnerships. And you're on a kind of three-year cycle. You're always hunting money. And so you actually – what I also had to realize was that the same uncertainty, the same sword is dangling over my head that I have kind of a couple-year time horizon at which point I don't have money to pay any of my staff, right? And I need to fix that. And uh, I – Kind of, I became more comfortable with the idea of pursuing the entrepreneurial route when I realized that the risk profile was not actually that different. Right? Yeah. Um, yes, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't 
have no income if I if I lost all of my grants and whatever, but I would be miserable and I would probably quit because I had no research program going on, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very similar. Um, I uh, I recently had um, Chris Hoyer on the show who was one of the lead mentors at Google um, Launchpad and we were sort of having a bit of a conversation about the future of work and what was uniquely human and sort of we got to a point where, you know, sort of Chris was sort of saying that, you know, the future of work and, and the things that are uniquely human are, are STEM because we need to keep the machines running to a certain degree. Um uh, the creative arts, so you know how we think and how we solve problems, um, and then lastly, health and well-being because we can empathise with other humans, and and those sort of three things were sort of sort of a, a really interesting point of discussion. Um, you know, you sort of mentioned earlier a little bit about sort of one of your superpowers to a certain degree is how you frame up and think about problems, um, and and you obviously come from a STEM field. Um, what sort of thoughts do you have on that? So, so you know, my view is that if if we are as a society, um, you know, as as you've sort of mentioned, we, we're entering a quantum future. Um, we're also entering a par- on a parallel side. We're entering, you know, your machine learning and, and and deep neural networks are advancing at a rapid pace. That's going to ultimately mean that there's going to be shifts in the societal structure, and we're going to need to educate people. Um, in different ways and and sort of what what are your views on sort of stem in general and and i guess the 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 level of investment in 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 australia versus the us and and ultimately sort of what your stem background has sort of given you um in terms of sort of an advantage in thinking and framing up of problems yeah it's a great question it's a great topic to get into um I'm really – I'm pretty fundamentally displeased with the way this whole conversation has gone domestically in particular but uh, internationally as well because science uh, – STEM is phrased now as a means to an end where the end is getting a job at Google, right, <laughs> or, or something like that. And that's perfectly fine. Um, but but pursuing a degree or, or some kind of education, even if it's not a degree, in, in science – it's not about job training, right? It's about a way of thinking about the world. Mm. And I like the idea of having people who are trained in science or technology um, being public servants or or being medical doctors or whatever, right? I think that kind of background or in management consulting or in economics or whatever, that kind of background is just a way of thinking about the world that lets you solve hard problems. Mm. I mean, that's, that's fundamentally what it's about. I, I don't like the idea – that it's just about let's try to get more people into a, a sector, a career pathway that you know has proven lucrative in the past, right? In the last twenty years or so, I think that's just a fundamentally bad way of thinking about it. And 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 also, I think is really detrimental to society that we've started to pit uh, STEM against other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a, 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 you know, the de facto. Um, uh, kind of implicit idea is that if we're promoting STEM, it's because other areas of pursuit are not as worthwhile, mm. right? Um, and I think we're we're inappropriately conflating what has been lucrative in a career sense, right? Yes, it has been more lucrative to be, say, a software engineer at a big tech company, a FANG or something, than, than being an artist. But it doesn't mean our society is richer for just having software engineers, right? Mm. I think our society is enriched by having people with a diversity of backgrounds and and a diversity of ways of thinking and engaging with the world. That means artists, it means political scientists, it means people who do just freaking wacky stuff in academia that I can't get my head around and I don't understand why they're doing it, 
but we need people to think like that, right? We we need people who simply try to understand the world. That enriches society. And I'm I'm so disappointed that we always end up pitting one thing against another and reducing everything into how much money you can make in a in a career path. You know, as a society, I think we're able to do much better than that, and I wish we would uh, embrace it that way. I think um, I think you made a very good point. One of the things that I've sort of noticed, I've spent some time in the US as well as in Australia, is this concept of a liberal arts education, where that's very foreign in Australia. The, so, you know, liberal arts has a very strong tradition in, um, in, in, in American universities. I have a liberal arts degree. Right. And, and, and so um, in Australia, I don't think anybody runs a liberal arts course. I mean, we do, we do arts degrees and we do science degrees, but... We don't really have this concept that, um, you know, I sort of view it as sort of a renaissance sort of view of the world where you can bring both both the the arts and the sciences together to to uh, to harmonise. Yeah, I think – well, I, I think there are lots of reasons why that might be so, um, in part just because in Australia we follow the English, the UK uh, education model of the short undergrad. Um, look, I, my, my undergrad degree is from the University of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. – um, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Physics, Yeah. right? So I took all the same physics courses that any physics person at any other school would, would take uh, in Australia or abroad, but then I was also mandated to take a whole range of other courses, mm. right? And for me, I took um, courses in history, courses in communication theory, uh, courses in the history of music, um, you know, the, the Two courses that I actually loved the most out of my undergrad experience were both these mandatory kind of other uh, outside of my degree stream uh, courses. One was the history of ancient Rome, mm. which I feel like totally changed my my outlook on life. Uh, the other was called the Devil's Pact in Literature. It was it was a study of you know Goethe and Faust and you know related yes. related uh, uh, literature. These things enriched my experience, and at the cost of effectively one year on top of. Um, on top of what would the here be a three year undergraduate degree? It was so worthwhile. It was so, it was such a good enriching experience for me. Uh, I do think it would be better to embrace that here. Yeah, and look, I can speak from my own personal experience. I mean, my uh, I was on a music scholarship to high school, um, and my final year subjects were physics, chemistry, music, ancient history. Um, and by the way, just trying to get them timetabled at the same time. I mean, people, there's a very much a hard view around specialization in this country and that you're either doing STEM fields and you're doing, you know, math, science, you know, physics, chem, whatever it ends up being, right. or you're doing ancient history and, and English. Right. Um, I then chose, um, to do a Bachelor of Applied Science in Applied Physics, um, for no other reason, but it sort of seemed like a good idea at the time. Mm-hmm. I'd love to say there was any reason. And then I've gone on to become a management consultant and 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 I think you, you're, you're right. I mean, but when people look at my background, they go, it's really strange. You go from being a musician to studying physics to ancient history. Um, all of those, I think, become a, a melting pot for solving problems in a unique way. Look, if it, I honestly, I don't understand why this is so confusing to people, right? Uh, just think about the current zeitgeist. Um, you know, in part, it's reactionary to some really bad stuff that's been happening for a long time. Uh, the zeitgeist around diversity, right? That organizations perform better when there's diversity. Well, this is a manifestation of that. Now, I'm not saying you hire someone with a music background and that makes you a better organization, but I'm saying um, for an individual, having a diversity of experience can enrich the way they interact with the world and 
can in principle make them a better employee or a better citizen or whatever. And so if you think about it from the perspective of diversity versus, you know, a very narrow homogeneous set of experiences, I think it should be obvious that it's better to have the kind of background that you have or maybe that I had or, or, or other people have had. Um, I, you know, there are all these all these political and policy issues that have have led us on this pathway. I mean, to, to take a diversion for a second, I think it's it's a travesty that uh, the Australian system has uh, has lumped all higher education organizations together as universities just so they can compete for the same funding pool. I think it was really valuable that we had technical institutes in the 80s and 90s. I think it was really valuable that TAFE was an you know, effectively socially equal uh, uh, qualification to a university degree. The, the result of that has been that all of these different institutes, the ones that were historically just doing skills training, technical yep. institutes, and the ones that were more liberal artsy universities, they have become homogenized and they're all just do, trying to do job training because that's what the government is pushing them yeah. to do. I think we need universities as a smaller set, instead of 37 in Australia, maybe it's 10 or something, universities to focus on training people to think about the world Absolutely. and to engage with the world. And you know what? I'm, I'm sure they'll all be smart enough to get good jobs. Maybe some of them won't, but you know that makes things better. And then you can do skill training if you want to be, um, you know, a, an electrician or a mechanic or a machinist. You can get skills training from, or even a software engineer. That's a skill, right? Mm. You can get that from a different kind of degree stream. And I think again, this diversity of experiences and diversity of opportunities in education is something that we're discounting, unfortunately. Yeah, we are. And look, I use this concept of capacity versus capability all the time. And and for me, if somebody ever asked me what I learned at, at university, it's how to think. I mean, for me, scientific method, um, you know, I apply that every day, right? And in my work in terms of like how I think about problems and, and I'm sure you do too now that you've, well, you've obviously did in your former career and, and, and your current career. And, um, you know, for me, in a, in a world where we're having increasingly smarter and smarter machines, um, you know, the way that we think creatively and the way that we uniquely solve problems at the moment, I think, is something that we just need to foster. And we don't do that as much as I think we should. No, it's true. It's, yeah, we're turning ourselves into little robots, right? <laughs> well, we actually make ourselves <laughs> we, redundant. I mean, yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the activity that is done in, in predominantly white collar work is completely replaceable by, by machines. I mean, you know, it's true. A lot of it is, and you know, maybe the utopia will emerge from that, and maybe it won't. Um, but I think uh, society is enriched by having people who think in, in all these different ways, people who look at the world and see beauty, people who look at the world and see something mechanical, and people who look at the world and see mechanical things that are beautiful like I do, right? I think, um, I, I think having all of these different ways of engaging with the world instead of just trying to push everybody into whatever stream is currently most lucrative in industry, which won't be most lucrative in 10 years or something, uh, I think that would be a, a better way to organize things. Yeah, and you sort of, sort of talk about mechanical beauty. It's a nice segue into the world of, of watches, which is I know a love we both share and we spoke about before we went on air. And we're taking a hard left turn right yeah, now. Yeah, that was pretty hard. Well, mechanical beauty. I mean, work with me here. Work with me. Um, so, you know, we spoke about you've got you've got a huge love for watches. Um, I have, yeah. When did that develop? Like, so what, what got you? I mean, for from a person who predominantly works in with with machines, um, what got you into into horology? Um, well, it's true. You know, as, as an academic, I'm an experimentalist, right? So, we, my company is a software company, but my lab is a hardware company. We we make quantum computers. We build them and operate them and try to do new things. Um, so, I've always liked building stuff. 
Uh, and and watches in particular, I wasn't building them obviously, but uh, as a kid, I remember um, always being enthralled by the you know twelve dollar Casios or something, and I would save up for months and months and months mm. to to afford my twelve dollar Casio. They're making a comeback. They are. They're very popular <laughs> again. Um, and then I kind of you know I I grew up a little bit in my uh, in my teenage years, and it just it fell away. I had other interests. Um, and then uh, actually, when I moved here. Um, I just kind of got thrown back into it uh, in part because I had a, like a neighbor who really had a great watch collection and I was, it was very impressive and I didn't really know about it. I just saw beauty in it and, um, I started getting more into it and I bought my first grown up watch. Um, what was it? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, it was a Rolex Milgauss. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful watch. Um, you know, it's a, it's a watch that's anti-magnetic, so it's practical in the laboratory, but it's a mechanical watch. This is the important thing. It's a mechanical yeah. watch, right? The timekeeping comes from a mechanical system. And I, I really enjoyed that. And then I moved gradually up into high horology. So this is, um, you know, <laughs> broadly speaking, it's fancier watches, right? Mm. So watches uh, where there's more work that goes into the complexity of the movement, the movement being the thing that does the time regulation, uh, more complexity in the finishing of the watch, um, more complexity in the functions, right? Because effectively you're building little little computers that compute things mechanically. Mm. The simplest computation is keeping track of the time. Mm. But then, you know, the watch I'm wearing right now is a perpetual calendar. So it's a it's a watch that knows the uh, the time, obviously, on a 24 hour cycle. It knows if it's day or night. It knows the day of the week, the day of the month. It knows the month of the year. It knows how many days in each month. It knows how many days in the leap year. It knows the moon phase. In fact, it doesn't need to be adjusted for 123 years, right? It'll just keep running. It'll always be correct as long as it's wound, right? Um, that's a computer. It's a it's a metal computer, and and that was something that I really got uh, into. And then the the final real link. Uh, emerged as I learned more about high horology. I learned about a uh, uh, a kind of regulation organ called a, a tourbillon. Right, so the tourbillon was invented in 1801 by Breguet, and uh, the idea at the time was that uh, men in, in in the 19th century and the end of the uh, uh, 18th century were wearing pocket watches, right, not wrist watches. And the pocket watches were always oriented vertically in their in their breast pocket. And uh, what would happen is, as you as you may know, there's a spring inside it's called a torsion pendulum. It goes back and forth, and that's like the pendulum in a in a big grandfather clock. That's what gives you the tick, right? Mm. Um, because it was always oriented in the same direction, gravity would pull that spring down and would distort the the timekeeping. It would mess up what's called the rate accuracy. So he figured out a mechanism to take that spring that goes back and forth and rotate it 360 degrees once per minute. Um, and that's called the tourbillon, it means whirlwind in French. And uh, that averaged away the effect of gravity because gravity is always pulling in a different direction on the spring. So that's an early example of something that we would now call dynamic control, right? You can stabilize an unstable system by making it do something, making it move. That's, a, that's like a, a manifestation in metal of my whole career. My whole career is dynamic control of quantum mechanical systems. And here's a way that, you know, my whole life, you know, going back to when I was in my 20s and coming out of university has been around this field of quantum physics. And then I've carved my own niche of what I did research in and became a professor in. And then what I've now formed a company in quantum control engineering companies called Q Control. Obviously, it's derived from quantum and control. Um, all of that aspect of my life is manifested in the watch I'm wearing right now 
in a tourbillon, right? It's and it's a beautiful link between history and modern technology. And it's just, you know, it's something that I can wear to remind me of of my whole career and, and what it is that I do. And, and mm. to me, that's a it's a beautiful and profound thing. It, it also is to me very beautiful. Oh, I think it's ama- I think it's amazingly beautiful. I mean, the the interesting thing for me is I can't even get my head around the complexity of how that movement is built, and and I guess the design of a multi-complication, you know, based mechanical watch, and and all of the parts that need to go in it, and the harmony of those pieces. I just think it's it's just a phenomenally complex problem. It is, and I, look, we, I appreciate that because the uh, the systems we build in my lab uh, or the software packages we build, they are exceptionally complicated things. And uh, this is just a mechanical version of that. Um, th- I mean, this particular watch takes almost a year to assemble, right? Wow. Uh, it's made by a manufacturer called Alanga & Sona. It's a German company. Um, they make very, very high-end pieces that are extremely complicated in many cases, very, very finely finished. So there, there's a whole shop of people who do nothing. One person does nothing but finish one piece. They, they polish it in a very particular way, straight graining or circular graining, uh, cut to Genève, you know, all these different finishes. They do nothing but that one thing. And uh, I, I love that, that, that combination of complexity, as you were mentioning a moment ago, with just extraordinary attention to detail and finishing and beauty, right? It, it is a piece of jewelry. Let's not be, you know, you can tell the time on your iPhone or whatever. It's not really what it's about, but it's about a deeper connection that I personally feel I can't have with an electronic gizmo. Yeah. But I do feel it in the way I described before with uh, with this this watch. It, it's true. I mean, I think it's what what people who love watches um, share in common. I mean, I I, I have an I, an Apple Watch, um, but it's not. I mean, for me, I have a collection of watches. They've each been selected for a particular reason. You know, you everybody's got a wish list of watches that they'd like or to mark a particular occasion. Um, you know, um, I remember I, I bought this watch I'm wearing, which is an IWC Mark eighteen um, Le Petit Prince, which I bought when I listed my company mm-hmm. um, on the ASX. And so that was one of the things for me, you know, it connects me to a time and a place. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's a very simple watch. Um, it's, it's, but, but for me, it's, it's, it's something that um, I didn't want to buy the most expensive watch that IWC produced. It was more, I wanted that particular piece. Do you have a, I don't need to know, but do you have a wish list? Have you of got? Of course I do. <laughs> of course I do. I mean, I'll tell you what's absolute top of my wish list. It's the, uh, uh, the Lange Zeitwerk Phantom, right? So it's a, um, it's a really spectacular watch. It is a, um, it is a mechanical watch, obviously. It is a watch with a digital display. So instead of hands, it has numbers on discs that will rotate. So it'll say, you know, the, the, the Roman numeral, excuse me, the, um, the Arabic numeral like eight and then 32, three and a two. Um, and those discs obviously jump once per minute. Uh, it's based on a, a clock that the founder of Lange made uh, for the Dresden Opera, right? And it was called the five-minute clock. And it had this this kind of digital display because men kept pulling out their pocket watches and the clicking was annoying the people on stage and the people in the audience. So he built this clock that would only advance once every five minutes. So you kind of know roughly when it was. But it was a digital display, which was a great way of showing it. Um, so it's that, except in a wristwatch. And the particular one that I'm interested in has uh, a very beautiful finish where they made the dial transparent out of out of a smoky sapphire. Uh, and it's just this this shockingly beautiful like gray and black, very modern, very avant-garde piece with this extraordinary mechanical complication behind it. it, it is 
it is the most stunning watch and it is almost impossible to find because it was a limited edition and it's also like ridiculously <laughs> expensive. <laughs> well, look, hopefully Q control makes, one day, it, one makes day. it big. <laughs> and, uh, and on the liquidity event, there will be a watch purchase. Um, I, I wish you the very best. Um, I've had a blast um, having a chat with you and, and thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I can't wait to see what Q Control and Michael produce in the future. If you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. Have a great week, and don't forget to take care of yourself. <laughs>